Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. There it is, and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, especially if you're one of our geeks and sneaks out there using this podcast to get you through a workout or a run. We're going to be with you in your ear holes for 30, no, make that 90 plus minutes, uh, because DLC is on right now. It's your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be, completely free, thanks to our sponsors, Cashfly, the best CDN in the business. You can find out more at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. They provide hosting for all the shows on the 5x5 network. Also, Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is back sponsoring the show, making this show possible. And DLC is the show all about gaming in its many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis, the guy who has exactly the same number of Oculus shipping emails in his inbox as I do, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeff. That lack of communication must be like extra annoying now as like reviews are hitting and Palmer Lucky's flying to Alaska to give people kits and you're just like, I just want an email, bro. Killing me. Killing me. Couldn't have been handled handled worse, I think. They they basically, when you pre-ordered in that maelstrom of craziness, they gave you like a, a, a random time frame window month uh, you know, that you, you maybe will be getting yours and then have not mentioned it since you can't find it anywhere on, on your order form. Uh, so I'm just sitting here in the dark waiting to find out when my Oculus will get here. And it, it's, it's difficult. And I'm sitting here at my place waiting to drive to your place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're both, we're both anticipating my Oculus arriving. Uh, hey, I'm excited, man. We are, we are joined by an awesome guest today. Uh, DLC, as you know, always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian, but once again, this week, DLC stands for our direct link to Chicago, because from the Windy City, we've got Kotaku's reporter extraordinaire, as well as the host of the Match 3 and Till Death Do Us Part podcast, Scoops himself, Mr. Patrick Klepik is back. Hey, Patrick. That was a, that was a complete introduction. I am impressed. You have done your research. Well, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of your work. How could I? I don't need to do research. I read you uh, all the time. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, it's great. It's been a while. I think, well, I was at my last job when the last time I was on DLC. So <laughs> that's right. I, I, I actually checked and you were on episode six of our show. That so. was, and I almost, I believe I almost had to cancel because I was in the midst of a spelunky run in which yes. I was about to beat the, uh, the hell stage in Spelunky, but I didn't and didn't roughly a couple of minutes before the recording time. <laughs> and so I was able to still be on the show. Yeah, that's hilarious. Now you've moved on to torturing yourself with Mario. 
<laughs> yeah, Mario, Dark Souls. I found other ways to feel bad about myself. <laughs> well, as long as you're doing that, that's the most important thing. Um, hey, uh, lovely listeners, you know that we always start our show with Story of the Week. We're going to do something a little different this week because so many of the stories we've been talking about lately are due in s- some part to the reporting of Mr. Patrick Klepek, and he's with us here today and has written some interesting uh, editorials as well on Kotaku, which I urge you to read if you haven't already. Um, but uh, instead of us selecting stories as we normally do, we're going to hit some of the big ones, but also we're going to dive into some discussion of the stuff that Patrick has written because I find it fascinating, and I think having him here will give us a really good uh, chance to to talk to the author of these articles and and get his uh, you know direct live response. Uh, so you know, not going to do the normal story of the week segment, but we will talk news. And I think the two biggest stories uh, of news that happened this week uh, are stories we talked about last week as rumors. One proved false. One proved it looks like it's going to be true. Um, I don't know. I, I guess we're happy that they worked out this way. Uh, let's start with the false one first, because I think we can just kind of move on through it pretty quickly. Um, the NX controller that everybody thought might be a real thing, because we saw it in two different views and in leaked photos quote unquote not it not it's a it's a fake right patrick yeah it it definitely seems like the the two leaked photos were were fake and it was something that uh as a news organization we struggled how to like kataka doesn't tend to run many rumors like if we end up running a rumor it has to come from like an incredibly credible source you know like a, a fellow reporter that just you know we feel uh, hey, if they're going to write about this, there is probably something to it. Um, and this didn't really happen with these NX controllers, but the first photo, you know, kind of made us queasy. But then the second one looked, I mean, it looked like it was taken by, you know, it looks like an actual device on someone's uh, desk with, you know, the appropriate sort of marks of a of a dev kit. But, you know, as was revealed in a, a series of videos, the first one was made in Photoshop. The second one, was uh, leapfrogging on top of that and used uh, a laser cutter and a 3D printer to create something in the real world, which is why it was allowed to look as realistic as it did. And when we saw that second photo, we thought, well, that looks, you know, that's how I've seen dev kits before. I've had dev kits. That's what a dev kit looks like. And so there was like, uh, and you combine that with the patent that Nintendo put out in December, not to say that patents always become the final products, but there was enough evidence there that it seemed like, you know, man, maybe even though we don't, we I don't know anything about the NX. I've asked sources. I've poked around. I know very little about what Nintendo is doing. And so that certainly seemed like it might be true. And it's obviously false. And and for our website, it's a little egg on our face because we try. We, you know, we sort of lent it a little bit of credibility by writing about it. But I think and if anything... We the only ones, that's for sure. Definitely not the only ones. But um, I think in the future, it people need to be extremely cautious, uh, even with things that seem legitimate like an actual object because we now live in a world where it's not actually difficult for people to produce live, practical, real objects that that resemble real devices. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah, the, the interesting thing to me here is the relationship between these isolated fakes, right? The, the guy who did the the Photoshop version is not the same guy that did the physical uh, you know, um, printed version. And it, it looks like one influenced the other. And, and it looked like the Photoshop guy kind of based his off of that patent, as you said, may or not may or may not be true. Uh, and then the guy, uh, you know, 3D printed a thing to sort of piggyback on that. And it was this weird daisy chain of, of fakes. Uh, I find that fascinating. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because the only reason it works is because there appear to be no credible reports on what the NX actually is. You know, like there's there's not there's a huge vacuum of information, and so in a vacuum, things can fill up that vacuum. And this is this was an instance where people are so desperate to hear what's going on with Nintendo that people were able to ride that wave. And I think it's very funny, ultimately. Like, I thought it was a ton of fun to watch people lose their minds over this controller. And, you know, the thing about Nintendo is that they've come out of left field enough times that you can't actually write it off. If any other company did this, if Microsoft or Sony did it, you would just say, oh, this is just goofy. They're, that's That doesn't f- line up with the arc of what the company uh, has normally done with their products. But with Nintendo, eh, like maybe there are no buttons. I, I think there will be. <laughs> But, right. you know, that's that's part of the reason it was able to succeed as a rumor because, you know, they did a Wii remote. They did, you know, they've done a yeah. touchpad. Like, what what might they do next? You know, I don't think anyone really knows. I guess Apple is the only other company that people would buy this wacky outside the box kind of thinking from. Um, Christian, what do you think? Is this – is it good that this is fake? Are we, are, we, are we breathing a sigh of relief that this is not what NX is going to be? Or are you a little disappointed that something as bizarre as this isn't uh... – isn't where they're headed or maybe it is and these guys are just prescient (laughs) yeah they might be spot on i mean it certainly is in line with the the patent which is you know just a patent but um i'm personally happy that this isn't real at the time just because from a design aesthetic and an ergonomics viewpoint not actually holding the thing but looking at it it didn't look comfortable i didn't i still don't based on the patent i don't understand the what appears to be wasted screen space beyond the thumbsticks where your hand would be for this kind of screen technology and i'm excited to see what nintendo does so i wasn't too jazzed on this thing so now knowing that it's that version of it at least is not real i can be re-excited again and ready to buy into the hype train came back around my house it picked me up and i am back on you know, ready to to chew, chew, chew away. But I feel like, as Patrick said, you know, you can't believe these leaks because of 3D printing. And I had a friend who is uh, a very good digital artist looking at these leaks and was like, dude, this this black one's real. Like, this is not a render. This is real. This has to be real. And he's like, you know, we're texting back and forth. And then when it came out as a leak, he was like, oh my God, no, I'm, uh, I don't know what to trust. And then he found out it was 3D printed. He's like, okay, good. At least it was like real. <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah, he was still like, right. A render, right, yeah. But I mean, like we talked about, I think last week on the show, Jeff, and we talked about it offline, like the, you know, the the mouth syncing technology, live syncing technology. So now someone could create a video of Reggie saying, <laughs> oh, no, I can't believe our controller got leaked. Right. And then an image of that controller. And it's just like, until I can buy it on a store shelf now. Like, to me, your Oculus isn't real, you know? <laughs> right, right. I know some people have theirs, but for all I know, those are all hoaxes. <laughs> There's no truth in the end of truth. Um, well, luckily, there was one rumor last week that turned out to be true. In fact, uh, Patrick was the one that broke this this story, um, reporting on discussions that you had at GDC about this, uh, what is now being called the PS4K uh, an upgrade to the PlayStation 4 that's going to allow it to display 4K resolution on games and I guess is going to aid with uh, PSVR as well. Uh, do you want to talk about how that all, how all, that all shook out, Patrick? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's an interesting process. Um, you know, we're very careful at Kotaku, and I've always been very careful. Um, if I published everything I heard, I would sound a lot cooler, but I'd be... <laughs> I'd be wrong a lot more often. You know, I'd, you know I'm someone that, you know, when they're going to publish a report, you know, I like to, you know, I can point to a couple of really big stories because I tend to sit on stuff until I feel it's, 
worthwhile. It's it's interesting, and 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 more than that, that I'm, it's going to be right, or at least that it's right at the time. Like certainly things change, and maybe this PlayStation 4.5 or 4K or whatever it's called or is being called internally uh, won't be what I reported. But uh, I've been hearing about something along these lines for quite a while now, uh, for a number of months, both. Uh, whispers on Sony's side and Microsoft's side. And then the moment that Phil Spencer uh, started talking about iterative hardware, like that sent off some alarm bells that maybe the whispers I were hearing were actually tangible products that were being iterated and experimented on. Uh, and then what happened with Sony was that I, I expected to hear about it from Microsoft, whether through my own sources or, or publicly, uh, much faster just because they seemed like they were ready to embrace it and talking about it publicly. So that just seemed like the route that was going to happen. Uh, but then pretty quickly, just before GDC, I'd heard from uh, a couple of different folks that, you know, things like development kits were being talked about. Um, and then uh, this thing was very real. It was being kind of dubbed the PS4K. Uh, and then what really uh, changed things for us about writing about it was not only did I sort of bring in the other reporters at Kotaku and say, hey, here's what I know. I need you to kind of fan out and make sure I don't seem stupid if I want to go forward with this, uh, was completely separately a reporter uh, at Kotaku UK, the editor-in-chief of Kotaku uh, UK, uh, Kevin McDonald, uh, who had no idea we were working on this, that we were looking into this story whatsoever, uh, sent us a message and just said, hey, so I'm at GDC, I was behind some developers, and they were talking about something called like the PlayStation 4K that's going to like do 4K games. And uh, it just, I mean, once that happened, uh, one, you panic because like, well, if this one reporter overheard it, then maybe other reporters are overhearing it and that you're going to get beaten to the story. So then sort of the competitive angle gets in, but that as much as you want to be competitive, you want to be correct. And so we started chasing that down and a bunch of things started lining up and we started seeing corroborating details between a number of different sources that made us feel confident enough to say that, yeah, like Sony is at least actively working on and showing developers and, uh, progressing forward on something called the PlayStation 4K or the PlayStation 4.5. Uh, I actually do know a code name for it that I, I can't say because it. one thing that developers will do is they will give out code names differently to different developers so that if a code name gets out, it's a way of sort of like watermarking information. Interesting. Um, so it's it, it, like the information I have on that end, I have not shared with anyone besides myself <laughs> because it's the PlayStation naughty dog. We all know that's what it's called. <laughs> Shoot, Christian, you're the only other person I told. Um, but it, it's, it's curious. It's, it's, I think it's regardless of whether it actually happens or how it happens, it does seem more realistic. I feel better now that, you know, Eurogamer and uh, the Wall Street Journal have weighed in saying they've talked to folks that uh, have heard similar uh, information as me, which makes me feel good that uh, I wasn't totally off base. Even if I knew it, you still like other people to remind you that you are on the right path. Uh, it's opened up this really big discussion that I think consoles are headed towards a more PC-like iterative uh, system. And I think that scares a lot of people. Um, and especially it's going to scare people on the first step, uh, regardless of whether it ends up being uh, a good thing or a bad thing for consoles in the long run. I would love to have that conversation. I mean, how do you feel about it? Are you, I mean, th there's one part of me that says, you know, it's certainly in Sony corporate's best interest to sell 4K televisions. They, they want to promote 4K as a, a reason to upgrade your television and your electronics across the board. And if this upgrade to the PlayStation can be their Trojan horse for 4K Blu-rays, just as the PlayStation was originally the, the Blu-ray Trojan horse to kind of get that into the mainstream, uh, I think that's pretty cool. But if you're talking video game stuff... 
uh, there is the danger of splintering your user base and, and kind of confusing developers. What's your stance on it, Patrick? Well, I think inevitably we were kind of headed in this direction for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, I think one, because every other piece of tech is iterative on a cycle that is much faster than what console has been in the past. You know, the, the distance between the 360 and the Xbox One and the PS3 and the PS4 was extraordinary. And I think it's partially because... Uh, they didn't know when to jump in. You know, I was hearing about versions of the Xbox One uh, long before we were. It was formally announced because both those companies, both Sony and Microsoft, just didn't quite know when the time to transition was. And partially, that is driven by the fact that uh, I think even though as long as it took for the 360 and the PS3 to be phased out, uh, the leap generationally between those two machines, I think people don't it wasn't that big relative to the distance between the original xbox and the 360 or you know playstation 1 and playstation 2 like we called those generational leaps because they really did feel like fundamental changes uh even if only visually in terms of how games were represented and the the leap from the 360 to the xbox one like that generation just wasn't that big and from what i understand uh from people i've been talking to since then who don't know anything about what sony or microsoft's plans are but can speak more uh, specifically to the technical aspects of how uh, GPUs and CPUs are, are upgrading, uh, there's not really an opportunity for there to be generational leaps the way there was in the past. Like we are moving towards uh, graphics technology appears to be uh, approaching a moment similar to battery technology. Um, and you notice this in phones all the time where people, uh, You'll see, you know, phones can hold a little more uh, charging time year over year, but you don't suddenly see like, and you're getting 30 more hours of uh, battery time. It's because like technologically we're approaching uh, just very small iterations on hardware. And so I think that's what consoles are moving towards is that if the leap from PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 5 or Xbox 1 to Xbox 2, (laughs) whatever they would end up calling it may not actually end up being that big. And if you are trying to push people to a new piece of, you know, hardware, like where we've got to shift everyone over, if you can't promise them that big of a graphical leap, that's a huge ask of people, and people might not make that transition. However, now that the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One are on the same unified architecture, x86, it allows them to iterate for the future in a way that if you sell people on not big leaps of uh, change, but small leaps of change that happen yearly or biannually, that's something that you can wrap people's head around. And then they're okay with the fact that it's not a huge leap because that's not necessarily what they're being sold. So I think this is much as a uh, change in technology as much as a change in consumer mindset uh, that, that may be reflective of where technology is just headed into the moment until we get some giant leap forward that doesn't appear to be in front of us. Yeah, and I think the the entire mobile market has conditioned people to, to think this way, right? You know, you maybe sometimes I upgrade my phone every other year. Sometimes I'm excited and I upgrade it more frequently, sometimes less frequently. It's but it, but I am upgrading my phone and I'm constantly, you know, playing apps on or games even on my iPhone that I played on two iPhones ago. Uh, and that ecosystem sort of adapts to that. And there are certain restrictions of games you can't play on older stuff. And and it's a more fluid, less less sort of stagnated uh, stepping stone of, of uh, upgrading. And I, I think probably these hardware manufacturers look at that and go, why can't we sell a a new hardware every year or every other year like the mobile market does, especially when they're just as expensive. Um, So maybe that has something to do with it. Christian, what's your take on this? 
I'm really conflicted. I love new tech and I love playing things, you know, as beautifully as possible. But at the same time, I've loved being a console gamer in part because my right hand and left hand don't work well on a keyboard and mouse as well as they do on a controller. But I I like the idea of having the best thing of the thing. And, you know, we think talked about it either last week or two weeks ago. There have been examples and other consoles have tried to do this. But I already buy a phone every couple and then buy a play. It, it gets expensive. It makes the hobby more expensive. But at the same time, if it can be done well and in in uh, the vein that is respectful to its core and to gamers, then why can't it be a good thing, right? It's like every time a free-to-play game comes out, it's easy to say, oh, free-to-play is the worst. These games are trash. They're not real games. They're just trying to take our money. It's you know not good for consumers. And then there's Heroes of the Storm. It's like, hey, we're, we're pretty good. Hearthstone's like, over here, dudes. Like, this is good, right? Aren't we good? And yeah, they're pretty good. So I think this type of iterative console could also be a really good thing where you have, you know, you're not restricted by bottlenecks or, or chokes in development. And you're able to keep putting out really cool tech can keep up with creativity. The flip side of that, though, is will you not get the awesome end of gen games that really pushed hardware to a breaking point and you look back at like um god of war 2 on the playstation 2 that came out what was it two years or a year after the playstation 3 was out and it's like holy crap this game is a this is incredible and you know they had that install base and it's interesting i feel like we're re-entering a wild west in the console space and until it happens for a couple of years I'm hesitant to say if I'm for it or against it. Can I have my NCAA bracket be blank until the, <laughs> the tournament's over? <laughs> well, I think it's entirely possible that both companies take a different approach. Uh, when I heard about the iterative hardware, uh, you know, like I mentioned, it was I was first hearing whispers from the Microsoft side. It made a lot more sense from Microsoft's perspective. You know, I, the uh, they've had success with the Xbox Elite controller, and it, it wasn't a huge leap for me to to see or to project. And then to you know place that upon what I was hearing from sources that uh, that would an Xbox Elite, given that the Xbox One is slightly behind in power to the uh, PlayStation Four, like if they sold an Xbox Elite that got it in parity or a little beyond the PlayStation Four, like that's something that's very easy for Microsoft to sell. Like that's something that makes sense given uh, the narrative about their console. Like you know it it stops them from having to worry about. Uh, the you know uh, Call of Duty coming out and running at a slightly lower resolution and all these other things that constantly prop up with all these big multi-platform games that allows Microsoft to say look we have something that is comparable the games are still going to run on both but if you want the elite experience you know here's an Xbox One elite so I thought that made sense for them in a lot of ways and with Sony uh, I think the reason people are puzzled is because they are the market leader. Um, they're, they don't show any signs of sort of uh, losing ground to Microsoft uh, in that capacity. And so I think there's confusion about why Sony is the one making that leap forward. And I think for Sony, it's more about just keeping pace with what Microsoft is doing. Like, what if Microsoft does that? And it really does take off. And then suddenly people are more attracted to the Xbox exclusives. Um, and so I think they're just mostly trying to keep pace with what uh, they're hearing about what's happening on, on both sides of the fence. And I, I think people need to not worry it's possible that I'm wrong in this instance, but everything I've been hearing about and all the other additional reporting that's happening uh, suggests that, you know, there aren't 
necessarily going to be PlayStation 4K exclusive games. Um, right. And that the, there's going to be total parity and total uh, compatibility between both devices. And that I think that will change at some point. You know, I, I think it's very, uh, you know, I think whatever the PlayStation 5 ends up being, I think it's very possible that it's just an iteration of the PlayStation 4 that is rounded up and, you know, is is packaged in the same way that, you know, the, the iPhone gets an S edition and then it gets the, you know, the, the number rounded up and it's got the big new features. Like, I think it's very possible that's where consoles are headed, but not every other year, but, you know, maybe every three to four years. Uh, but then, I think that's an instance where then maybe you start leaving certain players behind if they don't want to upgrade and and i understand that that's that's stressful but i think we do it with our phones millions upon millions upon hundreds of millions people seem to grasp that with their phones i think people can get it with consoles too it's just scary because it's new where do you draw the line though jeff like you personally let's say playstation 4k you know, you get uh, ultra textures on a game and the game runs at a locked 60 frames per second. And on PlayStation 4, you get a 1080p texture packs and the game runs at a locked 30 frames per second. Is that OK? 20 frames per second? Not OK. Like where what's the sliding scale for you personally where, you know, parody isn't quite what it's uh, heralded to be. Well, I don't think it's quite that simple. I, I, you know, I was talking to some developer friends about this and, you know, they didn't have any specific information, but they were talking about, how, you know, the, the sort of question marks that are around this, as far as, you know, a lot of these games don't have textures that would look great in 4k. And uh, some of the games, you know, they have specific sound stems. The sound design is built around 30 frames per second. So these games don't just automatically retroactively work just by, giving it more power to boost up, you know, into a, into a higher resolution. So I think things would have to be accommodated for that. Uh, as far as your question goes, that's tough. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really has it, it turning into the PC market. And, um, and I, I, you know, I think it would, it, as long as the games play well and look good, I think people will play them. And, and I, I think that's pretty simple. Uh, I think all of the the number stuff and how great it looks or how great it is going to be for a niche market like me and you who are really into feeling like, you know, you're seeing the game at its very best. But I think most people just want to play the game and have it look good and deliver a fun experience. Isn't it weird how so many people and myself included, we, you know, value the newest, latest, best. We want our things to look the best and be the best. But yet the majority of people listen to streaming music with Apple earbuds, which is far from the best. It's such a, you know, a step down in quality, but it's good enough and people don't get upset with it. My question for you, Patrick, and it's a quick one. Um, how many different pictures of scoops do you have saved on your phone that you can tweet out at moment's notice? <laughs> uh, you know, you know, because the big ones happen, you know, only every couple of years. It gives me uh, a lot of time to get a full gallery of <laughs> gifts and images uh, just ready, ready to go. It was actually kind of fun because I knew like about several hours in advance the story was running. So it was fun about 10 minutes before to start teasing people about. Uh, I saw that like drop that. and I was like, oh, snap, like <laughs> something's coming. It just happened to check. I think awesome. you were like top or second from top on my Twitter before the algorithm yeah. took over, you know. Oh, we did. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fun. Uh, we did get an email about this. Paul wanted to weigh in. He sent his email to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. 
Uh, he's already living in the uh, the iterative future. He says, I and I suspect a lot of people have been waiting for the half-generational cycle to get a PS4. Basically, each console generation seems to have a half-generational release where the new console is architecturally the same, but the smaller, but it, but is smaller, consumes less power, and usually has a bigger hard drive. It's also cheaper. If this new PS4 is basically that half-generational model, but with VR and 4K support as well, that would be great. The question I have would be, would this next PS4 be a half-generational model? I.e., would it be smaller and cheaper and use less power and have a bigger hard drive? Or would it just be just as big, just as power-hungry, etc.? So what it comes down to for me is, is this new version the one that makes me finally buy a PS4? Or will I now have to wait for the next, next PS4? What do you guys That's a good think? question. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know anything about the um, sort of la- that aspect of the specifications. I do know that I, I heard from from one source that you know one of Sony's motivations for this was trying to you know have their cake and eat it too, which is that you know as component prices become cheaper, the incentive is to reduce the price of the object in order to uh, you know make it more mass market and. Uh, and things of that nature, but you know, wouldn't it be nice if you could do both? Um, and so it's not, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I, I suspect that they will sell both machines, uh, going forward, you know, the PS 4k, which is the elite model. And then the uh, existing PlayStation four as a cheaper, more mass market model, they'll play the same games. You'll get a little something more with the, the uh, full price device, but it allows them to continue selling, something at $400, presuming they, you know, stick to the original price point that the PlayStation, uh, or $300, you know, like they, that fact that they can have tiered pricing allows them to appeal to a bunch of different markets in a way that doesn't, that's not usually how console sales go. It's always just cheaper, 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 cheaper. Uh, and if they can do both of those, uh, that wouldn't shock me. And then it allows them to try and appeal to a bunch of different people. In addition to folks who get really itchy about not having the best thing, where they will then just buy the new one anyway. Yeah, it's very much the Apple model, right? Is our new here's our new phone priced the same price that we've been selling the old phone for, but now the old phone is cheaper, hundred dollars cheaper, or fifty dollars cheaper, or whatever it is. Um, it seems to work well for them, that's for sure. Uh, we have uh, some other more sort of editorial stories that I want to talk about. Uh, I'm really excited to actually dig into these, but first, uh, I do need to thank our sponsor, Mac Weldon. Uh, this is a place to get your basics, things you need. If you're wearing underwear that isn't comfortable, what are you doing? What are you doing? Mack Weldon is better than what you're wearing. Chances are right now because Mack Weldon is smart, well-designed, premium fabrics, simple shopping. It's easy to get. It feels good. It makes you look good. And I'm telling you, your loved ones, they they recognize the little things, the little differences, your socks, your underwear, your t-shirts. If you're just wearing a, a crappy, you know, Hanes undershirt or a, a, some, some boxers that you got somehow secondhand from grandma, it, it, it makes a difference to wear comfortable undergarments. Secondhand boxers from grandma. Yeah, man, that's a thing, right? Isn't that a thing? <laughs> Christian, I have it on good authority that you were telling me exactly that's what you that's how you got all your underpants. So I Definitely use- go to Mac Weldon if you're wearing grandma's <laughs> hand-me-down underwear. <laughs> These are all antimicrobial. 
antimicrobial, which I said wrong last time, and people got so mad at me. I said microbial, which is ridiculous. Oh, that sounds way worse. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. I don't want that in my underwear. Oh, no, but you do want antimicrobial because that means the microbes are antied. You want these. These are comfortable. Christian, tell the people. You enjoy your uh, your trunks that you got from Mac Weldon, right? I'm a fan of Men's Basics. Mac Weldon makes very nice Men's Basics. I prefer trunks. Jeff wears boxers. He's weird. Don't ask. And uh, yeah, I can. I'm, I'm I'm wearing them. They're comfortable. Patrick, boxers or briefs or trunks? What do you do? You know, I used to be on boxers, and then you know, I I do what my wife tells me. She said switch, so I switched. All right. Well, Mac Weldon is there for anybody. If you switch, if you need to just update your style, it'll you'll feel better, I promise. Uh, we all use, you know, Christian and I both use Mac Weldon. I'm I'm wearing uh, Mac Weldon boxers right now and nothing else. But that's a little TMI. <laughs> uh, we're going to also hook you up. We'll get you 20% off your order. If you go to MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, We'll get you 20% off if you use our promo code DLC at checkout. Don't forget to use that. It lets them know that you heard about it here. Uh, just, you know, upgrade yourself. It's, it's good. MacWeldon.com, promo code DLC. Okay, uh, a couple of other stories that you wrote on Kotaku.com, uh, Patrick, that I wanted to bring up. The first is um, this article that you published just recently about um, – interviewing people who upload torrents. Uh, I found this fascinating because it's something I've actually never really voiced, but I've always been curious about. Uh, These things have to appear somewhere and you figure these people are acquiring these games probably by purchasing them themselves and then feel the need to share them uh, on torrent sites for free for everybody. Uh, We wonder what kind of mentality that takes and your interviews kind of reveal that it's, it's, it's a strange world of, denial and (laughs) excuses (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's fast it's fascinating um i you know i started going down this rabbit hole when uh the witness came out and uh jonathan blow was making various tweets about piracy and his thoughts on it and why he didn't include drm despite the fact that it was clearly costing him money um you know because there's a lot of gray areas here you know you can't prove that a pirated game is a lost sale but i i think any reasonable person uh, would uh, surmise that there are some lost sales um, in in piracy. It's just that there's no way to ever know um, what the ratio uh, is there. Uh, and then I just started thinking about piracy from different angles, and I started thinking along the chain of different people who touch a pirated game. You know, I didn't go all the way back to the source. So there's like you know the the people that are uploading torrents. Um, you know, there are often a step before that, which is that there is, you know, something called the piracy scene in which people are acquiring copies of games, uh, ripping them, uploading them to small pockets of the internet where, uh, then people who do torrents take them. So I haven't gone all the way down there. The, the, the more down the rabbit hole you go, the less likely people are to, t- to talk to you, <laughs> um, because they're much more culpable for, uh, uh, crimes and things like that. And even in this case, you know, the people I talked to were, uh, certainly nervous uh, about talking to a reporter, but we're interested in sort of like past, you know, there was, it was an opportunity to uh, wax philosophically about wh- how they feel about DRM and piracy. And you emailed um, like and, 30 people and only three of them responded, right? Well, yeah, what's amazing about what I, this is, you know, reflective of the fact that I just don't 
you know, torrent many things. I'm not going to claim that I'm uh, completely uh, non-complicit in that world in my life. Uh, I think everyone <laughs> dabbles yeah. um, for, for various reasons that are sometimes justifiable and sometimes just because you want stuff. Um, but that said, what I was surprised about was this website, Kick-Ass Torrents, which has uh, sort of been the uh, most popular torrent site for the last couple of years. There's a cyclical nature to torrent sites because you know world governments target them, tear them down, new ones sprouts up. But what's interesting about this website in particular is that it, it's essentially a social network, too. It has message boards. It has comments. It's got private messages. It's got achievements. Um, you know, it's it's really a, a well-developed network. And what that allowed me to do was to, to reach out to people in a way that uh, they were anonymous, but not totally anonymous. Um, and so I started just sort of tracking who was uploading the most amount of torrents. And then I would just send them a message saying, you know, honestly, like, hey, I'm a reporter. Uh, I will keep you anonymous. I've broken all sorts of big stories. None of, none of the people I've talked to have gotten in trouble. You know, I'd like to do, present your side of the argument. Um, you know, like I'm not going to, you know, I said I was, it's not that I wouldn't be critical um, or uh, to uh, present opposing sides, but that I think often people who do pirate or people that facilitate piracy don't necessarily they're not out there explaining why they're doing what they're doing. And I, and my, what I suspected was that they did have deeply held philosophical reasons that uh, prompted them to do this, that it wasn't just merely uh, free video games. Like, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a little bit of that, but uh, I think the article illustrates that it's a little more complicated. I think it's very easy to disagree with their notions. I think they use some leaps of logic to justify uh, why, uh, them uploading torrents uh, is legitimate, um, but I still think it's a it's a worldview that's interesting to consider um, about how we end up at the place where there are people uploading, you know, 10, 15 video games a day. I, I particularly like the the, the guy who says uh, I I want to take a stand against DRM, so I download stuff from GOG and I give it to everybody because I know it's like that's you, that's uh... you realize the hypocrisy that you're like you're pe- penalizing the people that are on your side. It's ridiculous, but um, yeah, I mean, you can see what his argument is there. Like he's like, I buy games from GOG, I support them, but then I just don't agree with DRM. Like it's just the leaps of logic there are frustrating. Like I can see the through line, like I see where he's going, but he, I don't think he quite realizes, you know, where he goes off the the track there. Like I understand taking a principled stance against DRM. Uh, I, you know, I, I understand why companies do it, and you know what I touch on in the piece is part of a story that I did a little earlier in the year um, was that I think secretly uh, it sounds like DRM is actually starting to get on an, a track where it, it may not piracy will never get eliminated, but um, there's this company Denuvo um, that has deployed. Um, it's not really DRM. It's essentially like an extra security layer that like uh, joins in with steam uh, and origin and other services. Um, and what it does basically um, from people I've talked to that have tried to hack it is that it essentially creates a unique code based on your computer. And so that if you buy a game on Steam, take the the game files, upload them to a torrent, anyone can download those game files. But in order for you to access the files and play them, you need the specific key for that computer hardware. And so what Denuvo can do is just you know create all these different uh, keys that are uh, exclusive to different computer hardware. So even if uh, you hack one version of the game, you know, all it has to do is issue a patch that recracks, you know, the game and, and that continues uh, going forward. Like, I mean, to this day, Rise of the Tomb Raider, Just Cause 3, uh, I think FIFA 16, like those games haven't been cracked on the PC. And it used to be that games were pirated, cracked and uploaded 
um, often before the retail game even hits stores. And now we have games from big budget publishers that haven't been cracked in months. And they will probably get cracked at some point. But if they can get, from what I understand talking to publishers, if they can get 90 days outside of the launch date, they don't really care that much. Right. Um, because just like movies, just like any other media, most of the sales happen with a very, when a, in a small window and then everything else is, you know, sales and things like that where piracy just doesn't mean as much at that. Point. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about that story quite a lot, specifically from the perspective of the crackers saying, you know, crying foul and saying, Oh my gosh, the, the, the era of cracked games is coming to an end. We quit all this stuff. Um, <laughs> right. Which is like, it's hard to feel sorry for them. But one of the things that I'm, so struck by in your reporting on the story is is the level of time and energy that they commit to these endeavors. I mean, the, you think about it being a fairly thankless task. I mean, they are doing they they have the game already. They they don't need the game. They're just providing it for others for free illegally, and yet they're they're so committed to it. It's it's kind of shocking. Yeah, and I and I think the you know there are two people that I highlight in the story. Um, I wish would you know I wish I could have talked to more, but um, there was only one other person that replied. But their their English was uh, really poor, and so the answers just didn't really make sense for the story. But you know philosophically, they lined up with uh, what I heard from from those two, and just sort of studying the community. But the the second person I talked to this uh, this woman, fit girl, um, uh, who was born in Russia and like was kind of raised in the in the Russian torrent community. Uh, you know what she does? Yes, she does provide torrents, but her torrents have a specific angle to them, which is that she, she she does something called repackaging. And repackaging is where, you know, when you download a game from Steam, like Grand Theft Auto uh, 5 on the PC is like nearly 50 gigs or something crazy like that. Like it's an enormous amount of uh, files to download. And if you, I don't know, if you live in a rural community where you have bandwidth caps or maybe um, it's just very slow for you to download games, maybe just your bandwidth is slow, but you have an unlimited cap. Like there's all sorts of legitimate reasons that that's going to stress someone out. What she does is repackage these games and gets them down to about half their size. And it actually has legitimate uses for people that purchase games. So like, so she puts up torrents of games like Grand Theft Auto five, but let's say uh, you buy Grand Theft Auto five on steam, but you don't let it download. But then you download her torrent, which is, you know, a repackage of the game that's half the size. You unpack the game into the folder that Steam would check to, you know, before it starts the download. Uh, and then you've downloaded it at half the bandwidth, much faster because it's a torrent, um, and you still purchase the game legally. Um, so that's where it gets into a really interesting scenario in which, yes, there are some people who are bad actors, Um and that are just downloading for free. But there are people, and this was mentioned in the comments of the Kotaku story, there were a bunch of people that were saying, I'm really glad that you highlighted this uh, Fit Girl because I I buy games from Steam all the time, but download her torrents just because it's much more efficient and uh, cost-effective in terms of, you know, hard drive space and things like that. And I think that's a really fascinating angle that the, the, the traditional video game industry can't, you know, they don't really participate in. So the, the audience does something that fills a need. Yeah. I don't want to be the bad guy on that. And I do believe sincerely that that a few people do that. But at the same time, I'm trying to think of like the worst thing in the world. And it's like, yeah, the Death Star, you know, destroyed a planet. <laughs> but like it, the gravitational pull of it made waves on, you know, oceanic, really dope. And uh, I'm a professional surfer. Because yeah, like, it was a, certainly a, a jobs program for the galaxy, right? So many people were employed on the Death Star. Really, really worked out well. Yeah, I mean, you can watch Clerks and they dive into yeah. it. I mean, I'm just, it's like, there's always, yes, yeah, some 
good, but I find that oftentimes the people that latch onto these anecdotally are people that don't do it per se, but they they want to fly the altruistic flag like, hey, it's not all bad. Uh, I'm using it to back up my own game collection or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I mean, the game collection I wish I could have if I had all the games. I mean, I asked my I, I had the game and then we sold out a garage and I don't know. It's such a weird, slippery slope where I legitimately feel bad. Sorry is not the right word, but my heart goes out to people that have data caps and they can't get these games and they really want to be more into the scene and and, and fit girl or, or, you know, repackaged games would help or be beneficial. But at the same time, I, I just don't, I have a hard time believing that's why she's doing it and holding up someone like this as a vigilante. I guess I know what side of Team Punisher, Team Daredevil I'm on, where it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? These are digital vigilantes where they're not busting crime, but they're Robin Hood or whatever the analogy you want to make. And am I just an old man fat cat sitting here just like, oh, get off my lawn? I I don't know. Something about it, this like, it's not all bad, has always rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, did you get any of that, Patrick? Or am I just... And feel free telling me, and my audience will. Like, I'm sure I'm wrong, (laughs) but I can't get my mind around it. You know, I think think what I've learned from the months of looking at this is that while there are lots of shades of gray, and I think there are lots of interesting things happening in these communities that uh, do have legitimate uses, and I think it is hard mentally to get just past this idea that people are taking things uh, for free. And this is a question I pose to... Uh, the the uploaders and pirates I've talked to um, that I still wrestle with, and I've never really gotten a good answer from them, or one that like made me feel great about their response. And is that um, you know I think there are certain things uh, that are sort of a fundamental right, you know that 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 a human should have access to, and I don't know that video games fall under that category, right? right. Um, <laughs> That, you know, and I don't mean that to sound hyperbolic, but like that sort of like cuts to the the heart of a lot of this is, um, you know, you know, you can bring up, you know, examples, you know, like there are people in third world countries where they the currency exchange means the games are ridiculously expensive relative to the cost of living and that they can't afford to pay the prices for the games uh, because of, you know, macroeconomics like it sucks. But does the macroeconomic problems mean that they have a right to steal it because they have a right to play it or they feel they have a right. And I think that gets into a lot of like really uncomfortable like questions about like how economies um, are fair or unfair in different parts of the world and like where people come from and how they're brought up and like what they have access to. But that's like a question I've wrestled with. And I think like that's the one that I fundamentally thought of at the heart of this. Like do people have a fundamental right to access things if they can't afford it. And I think it's yes and no. <laughs> like I don't I don't I never I never got to a satisfying answer. And I think that's why piracy uh is so complicated because I think there are a lot of people that just want things for free. But yeah. then there are a lot of people that have I think when you hear their circumstances, you sort of look at them and go, well, like yeah, okay, like do your thing, man. Like you just you shouldn't necessarily miss out on a cultural artifact because you got screwed from where uh, you were born. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't give everyone else free license, right? right? Like that doesn't mean that everyone should be allowed to pirate just because there are some people that kind of fall in, uh, in between the cracks. So that's, uh, I don't know. It's really, 
complicated, I well, guess, is what I've learned uh, over time. Uh, absolutely. But I, I also think that we, we're sort of still relatively new in the information age as a, as a culture, as a society, as a, as a human race. Uh, and uh, I think that it's, we still have a hard time wrapping our heads around something where if I take something and it's still there, did I take it? You know, like the right. idea of, you know, I would never, I wouldn't steal a five cent candy from a candy store. Like I've never, I've never shoplifted in my life. I wouldn't dream of it, but I, and I think probably every person I know has copied a music CD or downloaded a television show that I can't get here in the States. Or, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to pirate video games too. And I, you know, I learned better about it, but at the time it was like, this is a victimless crime. <laughs> you know, I'm not taking anything from anybody. It's still there. Uh, and I think that we sort of haven't quite gotten that under, under control just psychologically, just philosophically. Um, and I think there is, there is something to the argument, especially I heard a lot of this talking to people that, you know, pirate, like there is a huge, there's a huge difference between someone who pirates uh, when they're a teenager and someone who pirates like when they're in their twenties and thirties, um, both sort of as a, uh, you know, access to, uh, funds to, to buy the things that you want. And also I think a philosophical shift where you understand, you know, what it means to steal something, especially, you know, if you're in your twenties and thirties and you have disposable income and you take something despite the fact that you could afford it, that is something fundamentally different than being a teenager you can't afford to buy this game. You would never be able to afford to buy this game. Your parents are not going to buy you this game, so you pirate it so you can play it. And uh, I think those are really different things, and I have very different thoughts and like emotional responses to that. Because as a teenager, you know, I defined uh, the entirety of my musical taste based on the stuff I was pirating from uh, not Napster, but a software called SoulSeek. Um, which is essentially like Napster's where you went to get popular music. Soulseek's where you went to get like the Shins and uh, Radiohead and like lesser mainstream stuff. And what I would do was I would find someone, I would download a bunch of albums. And if that person, like their music taste lined up with mine, like I would just download everything else that they had. And then that would fill into me going to live shows and buying t-shirts. Like there was an economy that was created as a result of me accessing things that this is before Spotify, right? Like there was no easy way uh, to try out this music. Like there was no way for me to, there's no YouTube. There was no way for me to like, do I like the shins? Like, I, I don't know. Like I'll download it illegally. And turns out I do like the shins. Um, whereas like today that has shifted, but in games, you know, there's no, you know, Spotify for games. Like game demos have largely been eliminated because, well, I don't have a good reason for that. Like I, I haven't quite figured out why we've gotten rid of games. It actually bums me out a lot that, players are forced to watch Twitch, YouTube, and not do the fundamental thing of interact with a game in order to find out if they like it. And I think that's wrong. That is a perfect segue to the other conversation that I wanted to have, uh, which is another article that you wrote and uh, another, I think, difficult issue for us and something that Christian and I have talked about on the show over and over again, uh, because it sort of is is the issue of gaming in the last three or four years. Uh, and that is this idea of whether the Twitch culture is is a good thing for games or not. And I, I maybe that's the wrong way to frame it, but I think your your discussion specifically uh, centered around the game That Dragon Cancer uh, and the developers who uh, asked you specifically to take down your video and and did so with a lot of people that had uh, Let's Play videos of That Dragon Cancer on their on their YouTube page, and uh, and then rescinded that 
takedown num- notice, but sort of the the back and forth discussion that that happened uh, with regard to whether or not a linear narrative game like like that one uh, is being ruined is being sort of uh, losing sales because people can just watch it from start to finish on a let's play video and don't have to experience it themselves. Uh, I found this fascinating. I think this is sort of the central issue uh, that we're dealing with, with video games right now is like, what's the place of let's play videos? I mean, we've seen companies like Nintendo try to stop them and other companies embrace them. And uh, what, what is your position? Well, it's interesting because I think one of the things I've been, you know, become known for, you know, in the last year or so is, you know, I play a lot of Mario Maker um, several days a week. Um, and it's, you know, what is probably the most popular feature uh, that I do on a, on a regular basis. Um, but for about, you know, for the vast majority of the time that I've been doing that, like I don't make a cent on that. Those uh, get uploaded to YouTube uh, the moment that they process. Nintendo applies. I've got one right here. YouTube, a copyright claim is created for content in Mario Maker 92. Don't worry, you're not in trouble and your account standing is not affected by this. There are either ads running on your video with the revenue going to the copyright owner or the copyright owner is receiving stats about your video's views. Copyrighted song, Super Mario World underscore 59, claimed by Nintendo. And that happens for every single one of my Mario Maker videos, whether it gets 4,000 views or it, uh, some of the more popular ones have gotten over 100,000 views. Um, I don't get any of that money. That just goes into the ether. That um, I recently set up a... It goes to Google. Uh, <laughs> It goes to Google, goes to Nintendo. Um, and I recently set up, you know, a, a Nintendo's creators account. I can't remember what it's called, but it basically means that you flag your videos and that uh, Nintendo looks at them and then they release the claim and put a different claim on it. And then you can take a percentage of that. Um, but Nintendo also takes a, a cut of that, um, which means at some point, I guess I get a check from Nintendo for Mario Maker videos I make on my own, which is like ethically is something I still haven't quite, <laughs> I haven't decided if I'll just rip the check up or not yet because that makes me feel <laughs> very uh, bizarre. But that's one approach, right? That's one way um, to do it. And with uh, That Dragon Cancer, um, it's it's something really different because, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a single player, linear, short game that's about the length of like a long movie um, in which millions and millions of people have watched Let's Plays, but millions and millions of people have not bought it. And I think it's a little bit similar to piracy in that you qu- we can't quite figure out what the ratio is, right? Like, I really sincerely doubt if those Let's Plays didn't exist that millions of people would have bought that game. Um, right, but, I, think- I mean, your, your statistics in your article show that uh, on Steam, it sold 14,000 copies, which yeah. is a stunningly low number compared to how many views those videos have gotten. Yeah, um, and you know, I think the world were probably so. Here's what happened with that dragon cancer. So that dragon cancer, uh, when you get a copyright claim, which is different than a takedown notice. So a takedown notice is when a uh, a company uh, issues a complaint to YouTube and has the video straight up taken down. Now a, a takedown notice uh, is usually meant for like aggressive, uh, uh, like aggressive copyright uh, infringement, um, and it also means your account can be deleted um, if you get one and you aren't able to dispute it, it means you can't monetize any of your videos regardless of the content for a certain period of time unless YouTube lifts it. What they did was issue a copyright claim. And a copyright claim uh, just means that you just you no longer can uh, make revenue off of it. Um, or it's if the, if the person who issues the claim, uh, they have the option for them to make the revenue off of it. But the video still stands. Um, but some people will take that video down, modify like the part that got picked up by YouTube's algorithm, um, so that 
you know, they can continue to make money on it if they re-upload it. Um, and what you can't do as a game developer is you can't just take a percentage. So what I think YouTube, probably the middle ground of what YouTube needs to do is that if there are developers who feel as though this is fundamentally unfair, um, they should have the option to issue copyright claims that are only to take a percentage from a video. I think the the problem that, that YouTube creators have, and I think they are completely in the right, just as the developer, I think, has some valid points, to take 100% of the profits for the Let's Play video does not seem like a fair exchange, regardless of how transformative you feel the, the Let's Play commentary is. Um, but what if it was 5%, right? You know, like if it's a video that makes that gets say 1.5, you know, million views, like that's, you know, $15,000. That's before you take off all of the, you know, the, how, the, how the pie gets distributed, but that's, that's not an inconsequential amount of money. And if the developer could take, you know, a thousand dollars off that or a couple hundred dollars, that's better than nothing. And I think that's probably where stuff like this ends up, you know, if I'm thinking five, 10 years from now, I don't think it's going to be exclusively that YouTube creators get 100%. And I don't think it's going to be the developers get 100%. I think somehow there is a middle ground uh, that is different on a per game basis and isn't necessarily a a required uh, thing, but that some developers could opt into that if they feel uh, like they would want to. Christian, do you think this uh, disincentivizes developers from creating these sort of linear narrative experiences? To some extent, sure. I mean, I think the counter argument is, excuse me, that, oh, I watched part of it on a Let's Play and that got me to buy the game. And you hear that for the piracy thing too, right? I never would have bought the game. I pirated it, played it, and now I'm a huge Insomniac fan and I will certainly buy their next game or whatever. The hard part with it, and I've I've said it once on this episode, and I'm sure I've said it a, a bunch over our the the DLCs we've done is the way I like to look at things and try to wrap my mind around it is addressing the slippery slope argument myself. And at what point, how far can I walk it back and be comfortable with it? So for a while, the argument for games and let's plays was like, well, it's interactive. So even if you're watching it, it's not the same as playing it. But then a game like Uncharted or that Dragon Cancer or Oxen Free, you know, where it's a story is why you're playing the game. You know, to what extent is that a movie? And then how much, as Patrick mentioned, how transformative is your, to get into legalese copyright stuff, how much of a new work are you creating? How transformative is your work by adding your commentary over it? And then walking that further back, like what if I'm playing this game and I'm doing a let's play of it, but I'm so engrossed by the game that I sit there and don't say anything for two hours. And at the end, I'm just like, holy crap. (laughs) wow, that game was great. Or you're listening to a song and it's like, wow, that Kanye track was great. Or a movie. Can I let's play Memento and just sit there with my face in the corner or my audio and all I say is like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. No! You know, like, where is that line with being okay? And, And the point of this exercise for me is you do get to that place that is ridiculous. And right now some of our listeners are like, no, you wouldn't do it with the movie, you idiot. That's stupid. You're You're just showing the movie. Fine. Okay. How far can you take that up in your mind before you get out of that? That's ridiculous. And you're okay with it. And for me with let's playing in terms of owning the monetary, the work that's created, I haven't found that ground yet because I am not a souls game fan. I tried bloodborne and got, I don't know, maybe halfway through the game or so. 
and now Dark Souls 3 is out, kind of, <laughs> in the U.S., and I've watched some streams of it, and I will never, ever, ever play that game. Not ever, ever, but most likely never, ever play that game. I enjoy watching people's streams of it. Mario Maker didn't hook me, but I've watched several of Patrick's streams of it. So I'm glad that these things exist, but now it's someone's livelihood to stream the thing, and so other people won't play the thing. And then when you get into a game that is just a narrative experience, I think you get to that ridiculous point pretty quickly where, yes, you are taking sales away from the game. But as Patrick mentioned in the piracy conversation, I don't know how you can ever quantify what that is. I mean, Jeff, do you have where do you put your head in this? Like, where do you check in and say, this is fine. This is okay." Uncharted 4 won't lose sales because people can just watch it, which The Last of Us, Uncharted, I see tons of those, right? Where it's like edited together, here's the story. It's a mediocre shooter, but the voice acting is great. Watch this. Like, where are you personally okay with it? I mean, I think, you know, I think Patrick sort of hit the nail on the head that at some point it's going to have to be this middle ground of a little for you, a little for me, well, what our beak from from the people watching it. The, the, The thing that I brought up I guess a little snarkily, but I, but I think actually bears some consideration is that the real winner here is Google. <laughs> I mean, every, these, everybody can fight over their percentage, but the people who don't have to fight over their percentage is Google. They're making money hand over fist in all this. And the actual people who are creating the content or creating the content that the created content is based on, our <laughs> uh, our second and third fiddle here you know and, and and i think that that ultimately from my perspective as somebody who creates content for the internet for a living i think there's going to have to be a reckoning at some point of hey google can't make all the money here <laughs> you know that it has to be we're an entire sea of people is just offering up free content to elevate the value of a platform and yeah that platform is is not cheap to run, but at a certain point, these people are just creating free content, just donating it. Um, And I guess that's the old guy in me who's like, hey, you know, I I belong to a union because I'm an actor and I value my services. Uh, And there's a whole bunch of people on on YouTube who aren't thinking along those lines. Um, So I don't know. I'm very conflicted. And I think this is just the first tiny bit of the iceberg of where this is all going as fewer and fewer people are going to be able to make money on anything other than the internet because the internet is going to be everything, right? That we're not going to have TV networks in 30 years. You know, it's going to all be various internet portals. And I think that uh, in order for there to be content and people to make a living creating it, this is going to have to be a reckoning. But Can I uh, take all of this interesting philosophical talk in each of us in a yes or no answer? get to say right now, engraved in internet history, or Let's Plays, good for gaming. I'll go first. Yes. I mean, I think you have to say they're good for gaming, but... No, yes or no, Jeff. Yes. <laughs> yes, they're good for gaming. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, All right, yeah. that's it. Yes. yes, not yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Very strict. Very strict the lawyer on the show is. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about this. I, I find all these very fascinating. I'm just so delighted to have Patrick on to kind of dig a little deeper into all these stories that I enjoyed reading. Um, but, uh, but we are a video game show. We need to talk about the stuff we've been playing. So let's get to the playlist. Ooh, 
All right, uh, Patrick, you have a couple of things on your playlist that I know a lot of people have been uh, emailing and tweeting me to talk about on the show. Uh, let's start with Stardew Valley. Um, this seems like a game I would not like, but uh, you have been playing it a lot. Yeah, I, it's I, I don't have any history with the Harvest Moon franchise. Which, if you're going to summarize Stardew Valley, you know, in a nutshell, it's you know Harvest Moon for the PC right. because no one ever you know made Harvest Moon for the PC. You know, it's a it's, it's a game where you build a farm and sell crops. Um, but it's also, you know, it's got like, you know, visual novel relationship aspects where you're like getting to know and meeting all these people uh, in the town. And there's also uh, a hack and slash element to it. There's, uh, you know, you're uh, doing all this uh, dungeon crawling. Um, there's a lot of these like intertwining systems. It's it's a very relaxing game. It's a time management game, but it's a time management game that you can't lose. You know, often time management games, uh the enjoyment is around, is about the stress is about uh, uh well if i don't get it done today like oh and then i can't do this and i can't do that like Stardew valley goes on infinitely <laughs> it never ends it just goes on to the next season people never actually age uh you just kind of start you move to the next season there's a different set of crops that you can you can plant um it's just it's very relaxing in that sense but it's just stressful enough where like you know you have only you know each day is about 15 minutes so you can only get so much done on a given day so you are having to juggle all that but it's ultimately not a big deal because you just go on to the next day and you know it's it's important to me one of the things i've done uh like in the last 5 years or so specifically was to try and endeavor to play games that uh, I don't. I have previously written off as you know, quote unquote, not for me. I and mean, I think it's like something you do as you get older, as you tend to lean towards the stuff that you enjoy, because as your free time dwindles due to life responsibilities uh, and going to bed earlier because you're tired, uh, <laughs> is that you tend to prefer the stuff that you enjoy. And while that is like totally valid and uh, it makes sense to min max your enjoyment, uh, I also find that as you get older, you tend to then not try other new things or try them to the point that maybe this is for me. And so, you know, uh, games like Spelunky and Dark Souls and now Stardew Valley are, are games where I probably would have just said, ah, you know, I'm just going to move on to the thing that I know I like. Uh, and instead I found myself like really falling for uh, a lot of these games. And, and Stardew Valley is kind of the the latest one, partially because what it's great about it is there's no Mac version, but there, it's really easy. I wrote a story on a Kotaku today. Like it's very simple to run a couple of tricks to, to, to virtually run the game uh, on your on your Mac. And so because it's so casual, like when I'm watching House of Cards and it's a show that I don't need to pay 100% attention to, like only when Kevin Spacey looks at the, the screen will I then look at him. You're not going to listen unless he's, talking, guys. unless he's talking directly to you. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I need I need full full Spacey in order to... But you know what I mean? You, know, you have plenty of things where you don't need to devote your full attention. Or maybe I'm catching up on you know Superman movies before I'm seeing Batman v Superman. You know, like anything like that. And like Harvest... Uh, I almost called it Harvest Moon. Uh, Stardew Valley is wonderful for that. Like it is just a perfect like half attention game that uh, is satisfying because you basically start with a trash pile and then you just spend dozens of hours cleaning it up. And if you enjoy <laughs> games like that, that are essentially just management and cleaning things um, that, that rubs, uh, you know, a certain itch for some people. And and I've definitely found that it's done that for me. Uh, that sounds like a nightmare for me, but I, I really appreciate, <laughs> I really appreciate your point about that. I mean, 
I've often said, you know, there's that famous old, old James Lipton, the the questions, you know, the the, the questions from uh, Bouillon de Couture that he used to say on uh, uh, Actor Studio. Um, and one of them was, what is the job you would hate, you would not want? You know, and I always said farmer. I would, I would, oh God, I would hate to be a farmer. And I feel like this, this game is my nightmare, but uh, I do admire what you're saying about uh, trying new things because I'm similarly, I, you know, I jumped into Dark Souls 2 after not thinking I would like those games and loved it. And the same thing with the Heroes of the Storm when I was sort of like, ah, MOBAs, I don't think I could do it. Uh, and I've, I've loved that. So, you know, I think that's um, uh, words that I will take to heart and maybe I'll give Stardew Valley a try. Um, Christian, do you have any ambition to, to be a farmer? I've, I've enjoyed games like this in the past. I mean, I think Harvest Moon has sucked away time on my, was it my DS, I guess? Yeah. Maybe my DS Lite by the time I got to it. And it is, it's those, for me, when I was on the road or if you're able to commute uh, via train or bus, I think games like this are perfect because you can just put it down and get back to it. And at the same time, you have that gnawing suspicion in the back of your head that everything's gone horribly wrong <laughs> they've never worked as well for me even animal crossing as the sit down Wii version of the game but i i understand and appreciate the passion for this type of game a hundred percent speaking of passion uh you're also playing dark souls 3 ahead of most of north america um what is how is it does it live up does it is it a is it the sequel we all want if you like Dark Souls, it's it's more Dark Souls. Um, but I guess if I, you know, it's, since you actually played Dark Souls too, I can I can drill down a little bit deeper because I think uh, if you didn't like Dark Souls, I don't think this is going to change. You know, there, this is not a series that panders to uh, a wider audience, uh, <laughs> right? Anybody, even even to the audience that likes it, it doesn't <laughs> right, pander. Right. Um, but but it has become like you know that's not entirely true. Like the menus, like the UI has gotten so much better. It's gotten better at explaining its fundamentals, even if it doesn't explain everything about it, because the obfuscation is part of the appeal uh, of these games. Um, but um, if you look at the the series trajectory, uh, you know, Demon Souls, Dark Souls, Dark Souls Two, um, uh, Bloodborne, which I just include in the the the, the canon, um, and then uh, Dark Souls Three, um, Dark Souls Two, you played far and away like the garbage game of, of <laughs> and, and and that's not even say that gar, uh, that uh dark souls 2 is a bad game but relative to uh demon souls especially dark souls and especially bloodborne like it's just wildly uninspired um it's just like the the least um aesthetically interesting the least uh it's just it, relative to those other games like it, it's extremely weak um and a huge part of that i think is because like the, the creative director Hidetaki Miyazaki was uh, barely involved in Dark Souls 2, whereas he was the creative director or co-creative director of Demons, Dark, um, and Bloodborne. And he uh, came back in um, to co-direct uh, Dark Souls 3. And Dark Souls 3 is uh, very much a hybrid of Dark Souls and Bloodborne. It is so much faster um, than Dark Souls 1 or 2, but it's not as fast as Bloodborne. Um, so it still feels chunky uh, in a way that the, the Souls games uh, often do, but uh, it is definitely faster um, than the series has ever been before. And, you know, I think part, part of what I didn't like about Dark Souls 2 was just, it just was very boring to look at. Like part of what's amazing about Bloodborne and the other Souls games is there's just a, not a spectacle, but it's just there's a sense of awe and discovery of these worlds where, like, you feel like you're just scratching a bit of, like, you're just a, a person that's wandering through and you pick up a little bit about what's happening. And yeah, I guess you're a player in this, but if you just feel like very small relative to this much bigger world where lots of things have happened, and that just didn't feel that way to me 
in Dark Souls 2, um, whereas Dark Souls 3, I'm immediately feeling that sense of uh, wonder and awe again in, in a way that I felt in the the three games that are uh, that I, I, I liked much more. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's, it's more Souls. I don't know that I really want a Dark Souls 4. I'd love for them to do uh, what they did with Bloodborne, which is to take the DNA and and twist it, you know, and just like, because Bloodborne is very much a Souls game, but it, it tries some different things that fundamentally alter how you play it and, and, and the kinds of people that might be interested in it. And, uh, but if this is, if Dark Souls 3 is the end of Souls, or at least, you know, while it goes into a, hi- uh, a hibernation period, uh, so far it seems like uh, I think fans are going to be super excited about it. We need like a sci-fi version, right? Like Star Souls or something, you know? So what I, what I really want, like my like sort of like wish list is, um, is Armored Souls. Um, you know, Ooh. from software was uh, known for the Armored Core series, right. which uh, part of what was big about the Armored Core series was that you built your own mech, um, like it was highly customizable, like you could drill down super deep uh, on what you created. And so, I think science fiction would make sense. I think um, I think Armored Souls is just such a funny name too, because they already have Armored Core and they already have two franchises that have souls in them i would just think it'd be like a really hilarious step forward for them but i think that is the future of from software i think dark souls 4 comes at some point but i think they give it a break um and they they take this this idea that they've fallen on which is uh punishing games that ask not only a lot of the player but just ask them to pay attention like i feel like hard is usually I'm not going to say they're not hard. I hate people that try and make this argument that the Souls games are not hard. They are hard. But I think what is at their philosophical core is that they ask the player to pay attention in a way other games don't. And I think that's yes. fine. Like, it doesn't make you like a, a weak player that you don't enjoy that. Like, that is, it's just a different approach to game design. But it's often hard is used as a shorthand for what it's really doing, which is just saying you need to pay attention in a way that other games do not ask of you. And for some people, that's not going to be enjoyable. For me, it's the most gratifying game experiences I've had in the last 10 years. I, I totally agree with you on that point. I actually wrote an article uh, for the Gamers with Jobs magazine a couple of years ago, I think, um, after my Dark Souls 2 experience, kind of talking about the way the way the mainstream or the way that most gamers even sort of just colloquially discuss the, the Souls series, I think, is throws people off because you're right; it is hard, but it's not hard in the way that you think it's hard. It's it's it is just about paying attention, and it is just about um, what it asks of the player as far as your commitment level. And I think I think that's very encouraging. What got me into the Souls games, uh, honestly, was the the co op aspect of it, sort of being in in there with someone that I'm familiar with does it handle that the same way it previously or is it there's a, are there new aspects to the co-op? I haven't I haven't touched too much on that stuff partially because there just aren't that many people playing quite yet right. you know I think you know I'm not going to write a review next week I, I tend to wait uh at least a week or two weeks after these games launch to kind of uh set my opinion because I like to be out there with other people but I am um uh, I'm trying I don't want this to sound condescending as I say it like I don't play with other people like it's important to me to play these like I like them as an isolating experience mm-hmm. like I I like to look at the game as a mountain that I have to climb and that I have right. to do that by myself but that but that is also to say like I think it's completely like it's there it is super fun to play with other people it's like one of my favorite things to do when I play a second time is just to uh sit my butt outside of a really uh, hard boss and just go in there and wreck them with other people yeah. because it's just like 
because if you're asking for help, like either you play the game where you always play with other people and you just treat it as a co-op experience or you're having a lot of trouble and you're looking for help. And like either way, that's like so gratifying to go in there because you, if you're doing that, you've already beaten the boss, right? If you're going there to help people, you've already uh, gotten past that point. And so it's just, it's really satisfying to go there uh, and help people. I've had a couple, you know, there are exceptions to that. I have summoned for uh, a couple of bosses in Dark Souls 2 in particular. Dark Souls 2 had a habit of, um, there's a design approach sometimes the Souls games do, and Dark Souls 2, I think, abused it, where it's not just you against one enemy, it's you against multiple enemies. Um, and when you would fi- fight some of those multi-enemy uh, bosses, I just found them, I found them fundamentally unfair, that they, they weren't necessarily unbeatable, but I, I'm thinking in particular the um the sentinels i can't yeah. the blue, not the blue the the something sentinels it's an early boss like in the first third of the game yes. there's three of them and they can jump around yeah like you start on that really ledge fast. and then you can drop into the room yeah 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 and like you know i tried for like two hours like just trying to bait them onto the ledge yeah. and you know like it's just eventually i just threw up my my arms and 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 brought someone in and it was fun to wreck them that way but i uh as far as i can tell uh if you enjoy playing the game uh in the past uh, the way you have uh you're gonna enjoy it uh this way the one change i think they did make um don't hold me to this if i'm wrong but i'm I'm fairly sure that they brought over the change to bloodborne which is that in bloodborne you can set a password so you can essentially match make with people that's good um so if you want to bring in off a specific friend, um, which the Souls games in the past as a design choice made it so that you couldn't bring in your friends. You just had to bring in a stranger, which I thought was cool. Well, you can work around that. About, there were ways around it. You can that. work around it, but it was a pain. Like it wasn't built into the game. Yeah. It didn't recognize it, didn't officially support it. Whereas Bloodborne uh, did both and said, look, you can have a password system so you can play with your friends. But otherwise, we're trying to push you towards you know, playing with strangers because we think that's a fun experience. And I believe this game does that as well. So if you want to play, if we wanted to play together, just set the password, log into your game. And if you want to uh, play with strangers, you can do that too. I think that's a, I think that's a good change as far as I'm concerned. Totally. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, For me, and maybe these games exist. My biggest sticking point wasn't necessarily the quote unquote difficulty, however you want to describe that. It's the aesthetic of just like this grotesque, bloody, nightmarish world like i know patrick you're a horror horror guy and a horror right. movie guy i could only spend so much time in that world before i felt disgusting and not it's like you know again semantics not like oh i can't believe i'm playing this murder scene. like not that i just i didn't like it and i liked the mechanics but spending knowing that each boss fight was going to maybe be four hours of my time as i learn it and tinker with it and get through it i just found like the blood sprint spraying on my leather jacket with the twisted Tim Burton-esque architecture in the background and like the, oh, like coming from around the corner. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I don't know, I know like kind of Spelunky, it's not the same game, but like, you know, a game that requires dedication and persistence. Like I want the bright, happy version of the you need to pay attention game. And if anyone <laughs> out there can suggest one, I'm down to try it. But like that, that world was oppressive. Uh, overly oppressive for me to stay in for the to commit to it yeah that's that's oppressive is the the word i've always thought of to describe those games like i think it oppressive not only describes um its design aesthetic but it's actual visual aesthetic you know like it's oppressive is that game's uh mo it is oppressive to the player in terms of being punishing it's oppressive to the player in terms of the world that builds around you and it is too much for a lot of people i think that is something that would 
be really interesting for them to branch out to. Because I think From Software does it better than anyone. Other people have tried to bring in Souls-type uh, gameplay. Like there's a game from a year or two ago called Lords of the Fallen mm-hmm. that was essentially souls light. You know, it's a little bit has a, a lighter touch. But no one does it better than them. And I think it would be really interesting if in the branching out the Souls games, if they did it with uh, just a different touch to the just the visual approach you know bloodborne is very similar to dark souls even though um there are different settings you know that's just gothic oppressive as opposed to fan you know fantasy (laughs) oppressive and uh, i'm not saying it's got to be sunshines and rainbows but there's probably a way to split the difference uh, in a way that might make it a little more appealing to people yeah a clean like sci-fi clean look that would be really really interesting i think um, yeah, not a dead space. I don't want a dead space. <laughs> like that's, that's where I feel like probably what they're going to do, though. That's probably what they're going to yeah. do. So, <laughs> yeah, or like Event Horizon, and it's just more. Oh, yeah, and I'm like, dang yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, organic demons infecting in the space. Yeah, that's what's going to be. Uh, Christian, how about you? What do you got on your playlist? Uh, I took the plunge back into Rock Band, my good friend. And while I stand by all of the things I said to you when you got it, which is Rock Band is dead, no one will play it, etc. Go ahead that this will not save the genre and then the audience is not screaming out for this game to be made. Um, those games are still fun, man. Like there's no need to go buy rock band four. If you still have your rock band one, two or three kit close in that console set up. Um, but I was able to find the the band bundle cheaply and I'm actually using it uh, this Thursday. If you're in LA at the Hollywood improv, I'm going to be having that on stage with some uh, great comedians. So I was like, I, I will do this. This justifies it for me. And I've been playing with the whole family. My daughter, no fail mode on. Don't tell her. Um, <laughs> Adorable <laughs> videos, man. I was, I was, I was tickled watching watching them. She loves, she loves the drums, and she's timid at first, but then she goes to town and she gets it. Like she isn't. She's three, right? So she can't do it, but she knows what she's supposed to be doing, and she's trying. Uh, my wife and my infant daughter on vocals. One's better than the other. Don't tell which one is which. <laughs> and I'm on guitar, and it's just, it's just fun. These games are just fun. And I, I, again, I I think they're too expensive. I think they take up too much living room real estate, but if you have it sitting around, it's kind of like vanilla ice where like at one point, I maybe said this on the show before at one point, I feel like I went to school and we all decided we hated vanilla ice and like no more. We don't like vanilla ice anymore. MC hammer backstreet boys or whatever it was like, those are dumb. We're past that. You know what? Revisit it. It's still fun. It's still poppy. It's still catchy. I do wish there was a way that like, this folded up neatly and easier and uh it was just simpler to get in and out because that's the hardest part of it is like estelle now will be like let's play rock band and i'll just be like i gotta go to my office <laughs> get it all out I'm back. get the drums i want to do drums you don't want to sing no i want to drum okay but it's fun have you played your kit at all or is yours sitting in a closet somewhere? sitting in the corner i can look at it right now uh, i i do want to play more of it i i do enjoy it um I do want to point out that you advocated on the show for Vanilla Ice, for people to revisit Vanilla Ice. I just want you to be sure that that's what you want. <laughs> it's still fun. If you ever liked it and thought it was fun, okay. no. Is is it going to win your heart as like the best song ever? Is it Daft Punk bringing instruments into Electronica and redefining the genre that they helped create? Just, is it Radiohead's Kid A? Is it New Found Glories, Nothing Gold Can Stay? Just want to be clear. No. Uh, Christian Spicer advocating for people to rediscover no okay um my- <laughs> who's editing this episode hey guys it's christian just really proving that i am editing this episode and also proving that there's no way that jeff is going to listen to this so 
I want everyone, I know most of you won't do this, but it'd be dope if you did, just tweet at Jeff with nothing more than just the hashtag. What hashtag was that, Christian? Haha. Yes, it's true that you edit the episode, but I deliver it. And yeah, dude, I do listen to it before I put it out there. You can't pull one over on me. So guys, what you really want to do is tweet at Christian with hashtag nice try. Hashtag nice try. And I think I won this time, Christian. Okay. Just wanted to pop in on that. Okay. Back to it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about the division. I've been playing uh, a ton more of the division. I think I'm about 40 hours into it. Um, Finished all uh, level to 30, finished all the main story stuff. Uh, Man, I can't. This is a clear game of the year contender for me um it's exactly what i wanted destiny to be i know i've said that before but it just i keeps being driven home this the thing that people kept talking about all year long in the last two years about like what they like about destiny that i couldn't quite latch onto. that's i keep hearing their their voices in my head as i'm playing the divisions like i get it now this is this is what's fun and I've pretty much stopped playing the division as a single player experience, although I'm sort of cleaning up some of the other little stuff uh, around the map that I missed, but mostly now just completely playing it as a co-op uh, experience with, with my friends um, getting into the end game, co- end game content, he said easily. Um, and it's a blast, dude. It's a blast. So first of all, the story missions at the end, I, I you know, we talked, we were talking about it just, just recently, just uh, you know, a few minutes ago about um, the soul series and, and the aesthetic and sort of wanting to be in the world. I find the divisions aesthetic. I know everybody talks about how beautiful a game is and it really is beautiful, but more than that, the art direction, the level of fidelity of of the world and and how much is crammed in how much detail per square inch is crammed into that world and it's not just willy-nilly it's not just uh you know garbage here or there or a you know a street sign or anything it really all makes sense first of all it's based on actual new york and a lot of the fun that i've had uh is you know getting to a specific part in the game and then doing like a google maps image search for that same place in new york and going oh my god it looks exactly the same uh, really cool, but also there, you know, I, I talked about this a lot with fallout, the game's environment tells a story. And I just love that. I love t- coming around a corner and seeing, you know, a, a monument for fallen people that died during the crazy outbreak that happened in the division or, you know, going inside a store and, you know, it's like REI and you can, you know, actually climb up the rock wall because you can repel uh, and all of the, the the fidelity and the fact that nothing is repeated and it, it it really does feel like a living breathing very dense city with lots of buildings to go in and out of and how each of the story missions really takes advantage of the fact that it's in New York I mean slight spoiler but the the last story mission takes place in the UN and like what a cool place to end the big story is like yeah you finally end up at the UN the United Nations building awesome and Every story, uh, big main story mission has a really unique, interesting environment that you're doing these cool firefights throughout. Um, I, I just, I can't speak highly enough about 
the look and feel of that world and how it's all seamless. And I can walk from one end to the other and never have to go in a loading screen, even when I'm going indoors and outdoors. And the, and the decision that they made to set the game, you know, at Black Friday, at, right around the holidays, I think was genius, not only from a story perspective, which is kind of a cool hook about how, you know, the virus spreads, but also it gave them sort of a surreptitious way to give the game color. Because you're constantly seeing bright Christmas lights and things lit up and and um, displays all set for the Christmas holiday, and a game that could be as gray and dark as you know Call of Duties or other military shooters that seem to be all in the browns and greens and grays. Here's a game that is vibrant and it still feels very uh, grounded in reality, but it also has such such color to it. Uh, and I think that really adds to the experience and makes the, the scenes feel vibrant and alive. It's really cool. Yeah. Unfortunately the I thought, you know, my job forces me to kind of move from game to game and I was really enjoying, I played about 15, 20 hours of, of the division and I played it largely as a solo experience, but I say that with a caveat, which is that it, I didn't play with like a friend group that I had planned with. What I, what I loved about the division was that, uh, you could just make at will with any mission in the game. And yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this previously on a podcast. It's kind of hard to ignore, but it's the thing that frustrated me so much about destiny was that the matchmaking was just so poorly done uh, in that game in which they, they made arbitrary decisions on what you could and couldn't match make to. And so there were all these sub quests in destiny that were just sort of mop up things, you know, like come fight 10 of these and you couldn't do it on your own, but I, it, your alternate choice was to wait around and hopefully someone showed up in the area you were in right. as opposed to just saying, hey, does anyone want to do this with me? Like, we all got to do these kind of cruddy quests. Like, let's do these cruddy quests together. And like Division lets you do that. And it just makes it so seamless. Like, I want every game to rip it off immediately. I know other MMOs have done similar things, but, you know, I feel like uh, Destiny and the Division are a different sort of beast than like what we think of as a quote MMO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would love if Destiny 2 or whatever becomes just takes that um because it allowed me to participate in the game with the way they wanted me to which is with other people in a way that destiny never allowed me a hundred percent man you, it's a it's a well said and i completely agree everything about the game seems so seamless and and i love that and how it handles drop in drop out co-op even among people i know like if i jump on and one of my friends is on i can hop into their game and now we're in their game and if he needs to leave he leaves and now it automatically seamlessly becomes my game and other people can join it's never am i hassled by the the sort of uh logistics of of playing with people it just all works how you would want it to and uh it's it stinks that we had to wait so long for somebody to get this right but i'm glad somebody finally has um also i want to talk a little bit about the end game stuff. Um, so, you know, when you reach level cap, basically you've got uh, the, the new end game begins and you've got two kind of major things that you do. One is the daily quests, uh, which are the sort of big story missions that you progress through the game with, but now new harder difficulty levels have opened up. Uh, and you also have the dark zone, which is where you go uh, and it's all open world MMO style with uh, players running around and, um, harder enemies that drop cooler stuff. But as you've probably heard with this game, uh, the stuff that they drop, you can't just put in your inventory. You have to extract it because it has to, it's contaminated, uh, which makes for some interesting moments, which I'll get to shortly. But I want to talk first about the, um, the, 
daily missions uh, on there's two, I think two per day on hard mode and one challenge mission. So we were kind of rocking as my group of, of four guys, we were uh, kind of rocking the hard missions and we're like, let's do a challenge mission. Oh my God, did we get spanked? Uh, those challenge missions are truly challenging for newly minted end game players. They really do require uh, good gear to survive because we just got worked by the challenge enemies, uh, which I think is great. It really adds to that, you know, it gives a carrot on the end of the stick to, to really strive to get better gear to be able to survive those missions. Um, but Dark Zone <laughs> is, I think, a uniquely fun experience. I, I've read a lot of articles from people that have complaints about it that say it's fundamentally broken or skewed and that it needs a lot of work. That may be true and it may become more apparent to me as I spend more hours there. But initially, it is a wholly unique, fascinating, edge of your seat type of experience because what you have isn't necessarily safe at any given time, right? You you go into the dark zone, you're fighting harder enemies that that all all around you on the streets, you know, in these areas, inside structures. And you get cool stuff. And when they drop cool stuff, you're excited because that stuff is fundamentally better than the stuff you've got in the main game. And then you need to get to the extraction site. And anytime other players are around, you're a little on edge because they could turn on you at any time. Uh, You know, there's a lot of friendliness going on right now, which I think is a positive thing. It's not gank central, which I think is actually really, really good for the experience. Some people are complaining that there's not enough incentive to turn on people, but I think that's a really good thing. Uh, And then, you know, you, you, signal flare a helicopter to come extract your awesome items and a timer starts and you're waiting there so tense for maybe other players to show up because they've been alerted that an extraction has started because it sends out a a notification to the entire area but also the game will spawn enemies sort of right in the last few seconds as the helicopter comes down so you have to run to this helicopter get to the chopper get to the chopper now Uh, you have to run and it has like a rope that you attach your your items to. Meanwhile, these enemies are spawning all around you and attacking you, and it becomes this wild, exhilarating experience of trying to get your stuff out before the timer reaches zero and the helicopter leaves, all the while defending yourselves and simultaneously worrying if any of the other players that are also trying to get their items out may turn on you and go rogue. We had a cool experience last night where uh, we were kind of there were three of us on in my team and another group of like two or three guys that were sort of around and you have proximity voice chat. So anybody that's near you can hear you talk on voice chat. So you can actually have conversations with strangers. Uh, and it's really cool, man. I, my instinct would be on that, that it wouldn't work or that it would be annoying or you'd, you'd meet up with real a-holes, but it's been People have been fairly nice and fairly polite and fairly accommodating. And so we were talking back and forth like, okay, guys, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? He's like, man, this ro- this dude went rogue and took all my stuff and I'm really pissed off. And he's like, oh my God, he's on the map. He's on the map. And all six of us like started running at this guy and he was by himself and he was like sort of a high level dude, but he knew he was completely outnumbered. And we had this <laughs> massive chase through the city because – if you go rogue, it sh- your icon shows up on the minimap for all to see. So we could track him and we're he's like racing to try to get to the dark zone exit while we're trying to chase him down. It was so incredible. And I've never experienced anything like that in a game. Uh, it, I just, I'm so enamored by the division. I, I think it's, it's, it may be the first game I ever purchase a season pass for. Wow. Yeah. 
So high praise. I'm, yeah, I'm ready to. I'm ready to keep. I'm ready to double down and keep playing this over the course of of the year. I think. I think it's going to be a big part of my life moving forward. Christian, did you play any more of the division? Maybe 10 hours in. I think I'm level 10, level 9, something like that. I still really enjoy it. I've been playing blind matchmaking or, you know, random matchmaking for the missions. Um, it's good. It's well done. I'm able to jump in. I, I do think that there's like a... Uh, I don't know how it scales for more players or not, but I, I do find some of the enemies to be a, a little frustrating in their difficulty at times where it's not, as we've just talked about, a Souls game. It's not like I need to pay better attention and figure out this guy's quirks. It's just like... I need to shoot more bullets into this guy. Um, and the man fire melts you so fast. Oh, oh those cleaners. Um, <laughs> but it's a well-made game. My, I, I do enjoy the third person. My thoughts of it haven't changed. I, I think that the narrative for a game that, that uh, you know, tries to highlight its narrative is flawed and weird and argumentative and, and conflicts with itself oftentimes. But as a game to just go in and shoot stuff and explore and run around, it's a beautifully crafted world with really well thought out um, missions in terms of like gameplay missions and stuff like that. I would love to see this type of gameplay in a uh, fantastical world because then again, it's just my mental hand uh, hiccups. I don't care that I'm putting a hundred bullets into a alien with tough skin, but when it's a dude with the fireman jacket on, I, <laughs> I do start to get fatigued with it, but the gameplay is uh, it's really enjoyable. And there's, it's the classic Ubisoft thing, right? Where there's like, okay, I'm going to play for an hour. That was fun. Well, that encounters right around the corner and I'm so close to level 10. I'll, I'll do that. And then it's two more hours later. And that has to be the sign of a, of a game you're clearly enjoying um, narrative plot holes aside. Yeah. I mean, it's very dark. It is very, very, it gets very grim. Uh, you know, some of the, the echoes, which by the way, the echoes are, I think are such a clever way of upping the ante on um, audio logs. Cause I think audio logs are a crutch that too many games use nowadays to, t- to deliver story. And I think adding just that little visual snapshot of what was going on really fleshes out the audio logs uh, and makes them feel fresh and interesting. Um, did you Arkham origins? They did a, it's kind of similar with like detective mode. They didn't do it right. enough, but it was cool right. to like recreate the scene. And, and oh, I it. totally remember that. Yes, you're actually right. I think that's probably where they ripped this off from, but, but Bravo. Um, yeah, so many good things to say. I, I really hope that they, go farther with the the skills that you can acquire and uh, the talents that you can acquire, because I think right now they're just scratching the surface of what they can do. And there's a lot of fun to be had in having a really diverse team, but I think you can go even farther uh, and even farther with that. I, what I want, I want, you say you want a fantastical setting. I, yeah. I want the division done for, you know, sword and sorcery. I want, what I really want, honestly, I'll tell you what I really want infamous done like this i want the next infamous game to be this but you have infamous powers and you can have you specialize in which infamous power set you want oh that would be amazing and the same level of the city and like the traversal for infamous like i love the traversal and division there's a lot of fun jumping around and 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 even kind of mini platforming stuff but having infamous traversal in this world oh game over i would love that yeah i'm down All right, guys, uh, no tabletop time this week. Um, We are going to wrap the show up now, but we do have a parting gift for you. So stick around for that. I have to thank Patrick Klepek for being here, man. It's been awesome. I really uh, always love chatting with you. It's so great. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm happy to come on anytime. And uh, tell people where they can follow all of your various exploits. 
just take my name at Patrick Klubik. If there's some service, I've at least signed up for it so someone doesn't take my name away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh, five days a week, uh, I stream uh, from, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think what's the best. I guess if you're, we're on Pacific Coast time. So I, uh, from uh, 6.30 to 7.30 Pacific Coast, 9.30 to 10.30 on uh, the East Coast, uh, I stream various games. Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I do Mario Maker. Um, people can submit levels uh, and I'll play them in addition to the, just kind of playing, playing interesting stuff that I find out there. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we kind of mix it up. Right now we're playing Stardew Valley, but that might change over to Dark Souls 3 um, uh, as that game gets closer and it'll seem less weird to stream it two weeks before every other people are playing it. Uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, I write every day uh, over at uh, Kotaku. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Tons of stuff going on, so oh, I should probably slow down, but too late now. <laughs> can't stop. Can't slow down. Uh, how, how is the weather in Chicago? My wife landed there an hour ago, so I'm, is it snowing? No, no, it's uh, we had a very mild winter, um, which I feel like is going to mean we have a terrible summer, um, <laughs> which is usually how that goes. But I'm not going to complain about the fact that we've had several 60, 65 days in February and March, which uh, pretty much doesn't happen. Awesome. Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? There's my parenting podcast, Department of Parenting, which we're recording our first few guest episodes um, going down. They'll be coming out, you know, in a couple of weeks, but that is exciting to venture into guest territory. I'm just trying to make sure that we have having guests on streamlined so that when you come on the show, Jeff, we're ready. Uh, yeah. We're ready to go with accepting. I guess guests. I got to start guests. listening to that now. For- nah, you got time. Don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you're in L.A. this week, Thursday, I'm putting up a show called Boom Boom Bang at the Hollywood Improv Lab. Mary Lynn Rice Cub, who you might know as Chloe from 24, Brian Redband from the Joe Rogan um, podcast, and uh, Dean Del Rey, Dan St. Germain. Uh, it's going to be awesome. We're going to have some rock band karaoke, and it's just going to be crazy. going to be fun. And then I'm in San Diego, April 1st and 2nd, and then I think again the 22nd and 23rd. Twitter is a good place to keep in touch. It is at Spicer. And then I do not stream anywhere near as regularly as Patrick does, but uh, usually try to do Thursdays. This week I I played, but I think Twitch was down. I don't know. It didn't go anywhere. There was like a couple <laughs> people hanging out, but it doesn't show up as an archive. It's weird. I don't know. I'm figuring it out slowly but surely. When my monster PC gets here, it'll get better. I promise. But it is uh, Christian Spicer over on twitch mr canada what about you well i got multiple shows for you to check out you can always hear me talk about science uh in a comedic way if you check out we have concerns at wehaveconcerns.com uh if you want to talk about tech i'm over on cnet on a video show called tomorrow daily you can find that at tomorrowdaily.com and of course the slash Filmcast. big week for us we're uh we're doing our massive batman v superman episode uh drew mcweeney is going to be a guest on we're going to hash this out it's going to be Listen, if you thought Batman fighting Superman was rough, wait until you hear us uh, try to wade through that movie. Uh, you're definitely going to want to hear that one. So check that out over at SlashFilmCast.com. And uh, I think that's it. I think that's what I'm doing. Um, let's uh, let's wrap the show up, guys, with our parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion. All right, Patrick, do you have a parting gift? Maybe something that uh, isn't a video game that you can recommend? Hmm. Um, trying to think. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but uh, I have it on good authority. Um, like uh, Christian mentioned, uh, I'm a huge horror fan, um, and so I'm really looking forward to watching uh, this. I think it's a Turkish horror film. It's called Baskin. 
Um, it was picked up by uh, IFC. Um, they're, if you watch horror films, you are familiar with them because they pick up a lot of smaller stuff and put it on video on demand and stuff like that. But if you're uh, a fan of Hellraiser, um, as I am, it's one of my favorite horror films of all time, just favorite films of all time. Um, it, it is, from what I understand from people I've talked to, like I said, on good authority, uh, Baskin is essentially sort of a modern Hellraiser. It involves a group of uh, Turkish police officers that go investigating a crime and accidentally find a portal to hell, and lots of horrible, horrible things happen to them. So uh, that would be that'd be my recommendation. It's out on uh, video on demand now on whatever services that you've got access to. Awesome. Did you did you end up seeing The Witch when it was in theaters? Yeah, I, got, I managed to actually see that uh, uh, ahead of time. Uh, just like one, like a little contest thing to go see it early. Uh, loved it. It's uh, it is an seventies, eighties horror film um, in a modern style, and uh, it's totally worth seeing. It's it's excellent. Yeah, I loved it too. I thought that was great to check out that other one. Uh, Christian, how about you? You got a parting parting gift for the people? Easy, Petridge Farm Mint Milano cookies. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-mm-mm. don't sleep all the milanos are great mint milano yeah petridge farm is too expensive and they're stupid and how they're packaged it's like three then you have a throw some paper away then three more but they're good my is that kutaku the snack taku review i'll write it for you guys delicious christian and i were at were at the same place at the same time last weekend and you brought a bunch of those and i ate more than my fair share i would say uh i can concur they are delicious yeah, that's it. That's it. Mint Milano's. <laughs> hey, I got another comic book recommendation. If you're as excited as I am about the Doctor Strange film that's coming, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, get on the Doctor Strange train right now. Uh, maybe you haven't, you don't know who Doctor Strange is. Maybe you're a Marvel movie fan and you're you're curious who's this Doctor Strange guy. Uh, Marvel recently did a reboot. Well, not really a reboot, but a, a brand new, uh, ongoing Doctor Strange comic uh, written by Jason Aaron, who's an amazing writer and uh drawn by chris bachelor who's an amazing artist the art is phenomenal it's it's all of the sort of zany doctor strange craziness that you would expect of him like walking between dimensions and demons walking among us and just wild over the top visuals uh but a really clever take on the character very fun light-hearted and and, and uh, i highly recommend it so check out the doctor strange comic um from marvel all right that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks to Patrick Klepek and Christian Spicer. Uh, thanks to the people that contributed to this show by sending emails to DLC at, excuse me, DLC feedback at gmail.com. Thanks to Zero Star and Patrick L and Sean Madigan for the music that they created for the show. We appreciate that as well. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next Monday. Uh, until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. 